0: Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our editor at large and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported. By the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronoske Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Sean, Stuart, great to be in conversation with you today, Friday, the 17th of February. So I always like want to know, guys, is winter now officially half over can we say that we're on the sunny side the slope towards spring and summer
1: Uh, we had a lovely week in ottawa and then got dumped on (laughs) on the friday i woke up and to shovel my driveway so i'm uh, entertaining no optimistic thoughts about winter right now
2: (laughs) let me just say welcome back rudyard uh we we missed you last week on the on the weekly round table i know uh Uh, listeners will be glad to have you back to hear your takes on uh, what's been a pretty busy week in the world of Canadian policy and politics.
0: Yeah, it sure has. And let's start with the news of today, uh, guys. So uh, we purposely put off uh, the recording of this podcast so that we could bring listeners some analysis, uh, some insights into the decision uh, by uh, the Emergencies Act Commission saying in effect the verdict's in surprise surprise it was kind of what we all expected but let's unpack it because i think there are some interesting moments here and that verdict again not to steal the headline here is that the invoking of the act was appropriate uh its conditions were met um stuart let me come to you first because you are our man in ottawa uh what's your take on this
1: Yeah, well, if you had asked me a few days ago, I probably wouldn't have been surprised by the headline. But the fact that it came out um, on Friday afternoon before a long weekend, I admit that I got my hopes up a little bit when I heard that last night that maybe this was going to be a big newsy report. Um, But yeah, I think it's about what I expected. There's no big um, criticisms of the government except kind of here and there on the margins. So he criticized some of the factors in the emergency act, like stripping people of their insurance, saying it's counterproductive and not useful. He talked about shutting down joint bank accounts, which is unfair to the spouse of the person who uh, was involved in the protests. And he actually kind of didn't really, but he did criticize a little bit uh, the prime minister's rhetoric against the protests, saying that that was counterproductive. But I would say that most of the, uh, if, if you're talking about direct criticism of politicians, Doug Ford actually came in for worse criticism than Justin... Trudeau. And uh, the Ottawa Police Service, I think, as we could have predicted, did not come out of this looking very good. Sean, the justice, uh,
0: you know, in a typical, somewhat typical Canadian fashion, you know, uh, goes for, you know, one of the greatest hits, the failure of federalism. This is all kind of indicative of some larger rot uh, in the body politic. And um, What's your take on that? I mean, I think you could make an argument. I mean, this is where I get a little frustrated with reports like this. Again, we know in a sense it's an official report in some ways, yes, done by a justice, but imbuted in the kind of culture of Ottawa and officialdom. So for officialdom to call itself out and slap its own wrist is a is a rare occurrence indeed. But I I do sense that failure of federalism is something that, you know, has to be prodded further. that This was a manageable problem in any other European country. We can think of the struggles that France has had with the yellow vests. Uh, Yes, the United States, January 6th, a tragedy, but nonetheless one that from a policing perspective, you know, they could have, should have, would have been able to control. They certainly didn't invoke the Emergencies Act. So what's going on in Canada? Do you think there's something unique here in our proclivity to reach for these kind of maximal solutions when so-called peace order and good government uh, is in doubt.
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Roger. Uh, you know, I interpret the findings of the report to essentially say this, the invocation of the Emergency Act was justified after successive governments and other actors, let it become an emergency, you know? Um uh, and, and so, you know, it, it seems to me the, the the fundamental point is, what were the factors that caused the emergency in the first place? And I'm going to turn to uh, Stuart's better half. One of uh, my favorite podcast episodes so far this year was with Canadian press journalist uh, Laura Osmond, who uh, closely followed the, the hearings over the six week period or so. And she predicted this outcome uh, in our conversation. She said, that the response to the, to the protests was quote dysfunctional from top to bottom, and I, I think that's an, an effect to what the report is saying. And it comes back to a broader point, I guess, guys, that uh, you know I think is often reflected on this podcast and at the hub, which is there's a lot of self righteousness in Canada about our government and the kind of strength of our public sector as a key institution. And just yesterday, the Trudeau government was launching a new. Innovation agency that uh, is going to purportedly solve all of our innovation and productivity woes, and I think we need to have a pretty serious conversation as a as a country and society. We have a state capacity problem in Canada, so much so that when what on the face of it looks like a, a reasonable law enforcement problem uh, emerges, uh, we let it become an emergency that then enables us to invoke extraordinary legislation. Um, that's ought to be a problem, and that's not a partisan point. You know, it seems to me this is a, a represents a kind of deeper problem in Canadian society.
0: Yeah, here, here, Sean. Well, well put, and I, I think you're exactly right. It's like we, we create the conditions for our own failure. Um, so maybe at the end of the day, the Act had to be invoked. I'm not so sure about that. I think there were, you know, provincial the provincial police, the OPP. There were powers that could have been used and you know the prime minister and maybe you're right ultimately Doug Ford or somebody could have stepped forward to provide the necessary leadership we didn't do that and we did what is so common in Canada which is we reached for you know the hammer um, and we found a nail and in this case uh, it was these protesters they were inconvenient they were disruptive they were noisy they were angry they were decidedly politically incorrect Stuart I often wonder though if if, I, if my analysis is biased because I'm in Toronto, I didn't have the trucks on my street, and I do hear from people in Ottawa that you had to be there to understand just how chaotic and seemingly out of control this is. So I want to give the benefit of the doubt maybe to you, Stuart, you were in Ottawa during the protests. Is there an argument, a kind of Ottawa-centric argument, and I don't mean that pejoratively here, that this genuinely was out of control and the rest of the country just doesn't understand this?
1: Yeah, out of control is not exactly how i would put it because there was just this weird malaise in the city it was one of the strangest things i've ever experienced not just as a reporter but as a person living in this country and the the reason that i've always had this you know it's not a totally coherent opinion on the invocation of the emergencies act is that it did feel to me like something had to burst that bubble and you know doug ford i think is rightfully criticized in that report because he was almost literally hiding. He didn't want to do anything. He didn't want to say anything. The Ottawa police service was so chaotic. They weren't even talking to each other properly. And I, I, even the media at the time, I think in this report by justice reload, the media is criticized for some of the, um, they were at times, they were blaming protesters for things that were just normal crimes that were happening in the city at the time. And I think everyone kind of lost it. And I don't fully know, um, how to process that. Because I think what Sean says is absolutely correct. It's that we had this cascading failure. None of us handled it well. And there is a part of me that thinks at last, Trudeau said, I'm gonna do this extraordinary thing and solve this problem in the city. And there's a part of me that's sympathetic to that. And I think that's what you can kind of see in this report. It's not totally coherent at times. The justice is kind of feeling around for a way to justify this because it does feel justified from the perspective of someone in ottawa but i on the legal question when i listen to lawyers talk about it 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 doesn't seem justified to me at all so sean is this it is this you know 800 900 pages
0: whatever no sorry 2000 pages 2000 page uh report um nine thousand documents uh, that's it we just bury this everyone goes back to work um as i understand it in ottawa there's been very little in the way of accountability in terms of yes of chief, uh, chief of police resigned, but beyond that, very little in the way of accountability. Um, so it's just you know, rinse, repeat, wait for the next time, find the hammer, find the nail, start pounding away.
2: There's different ways in which I could respond to that. Uh, respond to that, Roger. Right? You know, one way would be uh, to highlight the need perhaps for more significant changes to overlapping responsibilities in our national capital. You know, do we need something like uh, a, a move closer to, say, a Washington, D.C. model to deal with the kind of overlapping and confusing jurisdiction between the federal government, the National Capital Commission, the city of Ottawa, et cetera. But I, I want to take it in a different direction because I, I don't think this is actually going away. In a way, the kind of energy and the anger and the grievance that was reflected in those weeks in um, in uh, February 2022, I think, are still with us. We're having this conversation today, incidentally, against a backdrop of a story uh, about efforts in Alberta to nominate kind of freedom convoy type candidates across the ridings within the UCP. A, an effort of a group there called Take Back Alberta, um, that itself was a kind of manifestation of the energy and the grievance and and anger that that came out of the COVID era. I, You know, we've seen ongoing protests following Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, um, you know, months after most of the pandemic restrictions were gone. I still think that this is part of our body politic, um, and it's going to require, um, because it seems to be mostly manifesting itself on the right, it's going to require pretty kind of careful depth touch on the part of Pierre Polyev to, on one hand, um, signal that he he's kind of responsive to these sentiments and feelings, but on the other hand, uh, avoid having it pull him in the directions that will turn off the voters who um, who are ultimately going to determine the next federal election. So I guess it's a long way of saying, um, I don't know, guys, I, I think the freedom convoy is with us in kind of a, a permeating our politics um, still today.
0: Yeah, and that's where I want to end this segment with you, Stuart, on the Freedom Convoy. You know, again, no surprise they didn't get any kind of you know uh, acknowledgement. Their arguments were dismissed by the judge, et cetera, et cetera. But I just think at, at the end of the day, we do have to acknowledge that it, it wasn't a January sixth incident. It was a long, long way, thankfully, from that. So there's something positive there. Our culture doesn't have whatever kind of uh, meme ran through uh, the mall on Capitol Hill um, on January 6th of the year before when Donald Trump effectively provoked, uh, you know, an armed insurrection against the Capitol building. So, you know, where does the convoy stand here? I mean, to some extent, I want to give them a bit of credit, you know. I mean, look, they said their demonstrations were— Uh, lawful and peaceful, and we can agree probably that that's not the case. But to their benefit, it wasn't January 6th. There weren't large-scale acts of violence, Um, yet that seems lost. We seem to have lost maybe an awareness of probably the sense of the convoy's own legitimacy based on its own behavior.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think I actually am one of those kind of representative Canadians who— You know, we we kept seeing these polls that would say, if you take out the actions of the convoy and talk about mandates, et cetera, all the things they're protesting, Canadians were far more sympathetic than they were to the convoy itself. And, you know, I'm exhibit A of that. I was, you know, I had a four-year-old out of school for a preposterously long time uh, in Ontario, and all these mandates were starting to wear on me. But I'm also allergic to disorder, especially in my own city. And so I had that kind of dual thing in my brain about, you know, how do I take this in? How do I process this? And I think most of the Canadians who are center right or maybe in the center are doing that right now. And Polyev was doing this thing where I th- I think he felt like he could signal to those Canadians by expressing some support for the beliefs of the convoy, um, but then not the convoy. He would always Have that caveat about criminality. I don't think that, I think probably what we'll see happen here is that Trudeau has realized it's too dangerous of a game to sort of try and thread this needle and pull the conservatives into this because I think he's looking like a divider more than he would like to right now. Um, So maybe this will sort of naturally ebb away, but for Polyev, I think Sean's right. This is, is one of those things where he can't look like a convoy fanatic, but he has to reflect people like me who had some genuine concerns about what was going on.
0: You know, the commission I wish we had, the 2000 page report I wish we could dig into today would have been on the larger pandemic response, because I think it will go down in history as probably one of the greatest public policy failures of our generation, virtually on any metric, on public finance, on public accountability, on a whole series of mandates that Ultimately, from an epidemiological perspective, I think have been largely refuted now after the fact. Yes, with twenty twenty hindsight, mass school closures, um, the kind of hysteria uh, that you know different parties and politicians whipped up over the unvaccinated. Wow, guys! You know, if you think of a commission that would be valuable, because this probably isn't our last rodeo when it comes to. Pandemics, that would be the commission to have. Well, look, when we come back after this break, some wild news on China, Canada China election interference. We'll dig into that in just a few moments. You're one click away from getting access to all the hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca, now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Welcome back to the Friday Roundtable. You're joined by moi, myself, Rudy Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Also with us is Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor chief Guys, let's spend the back half of the show just talking about some more breaking news today, Friday, the 17th of February, when we're recording. Um, Reports by CTV um, suggesting... uh, scary level of coordinated Chinese state interference into our elections. Uh, Stuart, unpack the highlights for us, and then Sean, I want to come to you for the kind of analysis. What does this mean? Who knew what, when, and wow, uh, where do we stand right now in terms of the safety, security, sanctity of both our elections and our registered political parties?
1: Yeah, this has been sort of a brewing story. We have covered it at The Hub, which is that we right after the election, Aaron O'Toole said, you know, I think China had something to do with this. And it did have the feeling of maybe a sore loser looking for something to blame or blowing up something he'd heard on the campaign trail. But um, investigative reporting from CTV and now subsequent reporting from the Globe and Mail, which is based on CSIS materials, um, show that this looks like it could be a very big deal. Um, the two things that we weren't sure that I wasn't sure from the previous reporting was the prime minister's denials always seem to be kind of, you know, very narrow, very particular denials. Um, it is hard to see how they hold up with this new Globe reporting, which I mean, this was circulating through the government. There's It's just hard to fathom a world in which he didn't know about this um, to the extent that it was happening. Um, and the second thing is that it does seem to be clear that China was interested in liberal candidates winning and conservative candidates losing. Um, how much that matters to us, how much we care what China thinks. I mean, people can make their own judgments on that, but um, it maybe does tell you a, a reason for the government's behavior on this, which is to just kind of get this out of the way. Um, I, I think this is a big test for a lot of people who compare who cared about disinformation in another country in the US in 2016 with Russia and their crazy memes supporting Donald Trump. Um, this looks like a
2: very sophisticated campaign, something we should be really concerned about. May I just make three quick points and then I'll turn the floor over to back to Rudyard. One, uh, congratulations to Steve Chase and Robert Fife. And at a time when we're talking about the future of journalism and whether people are prepared to pay for journalism, this kind of digging justifies, you know. Uh, Uh, investing in uh, journalistic and and, and investigative capacity. As as Stuart says, they've gotten their hands on um, uh, comprehensive materials from CSIS uh, about uh, Chinese interference in the 2021 campaign. And again, as Stuart says, it's hard to see a world in which um, members of the political arm of the government weren't familiar with this analysis because according to Chase and Fife, it was shared amongst senior government officials as well as Five Eyes intelligence agencies of the U.S., Britain, Australia, New Zealand, um, as well as um, the French and the German. So uh, this seems to me to be uh, efforts at the level of of Canada's national security institutions um, getting to the bottom of these issues. You know, in a global way, uh, it's extraordinary to think that uh, the, you know the, this wouldn't have been brought to the attention of the prime minister and or his minister of public safety. Um, the third thing I'll say is that it, it does show... Um, That senior Chinese officials. So this isn't sort of like proxy figures in China. These are people in state roles um, seemingly have contributed to this uh, comprehensive strategy to influence the election campaign. And then just, I guess, one final point, an extra one, if I may. Uh, What I find so striking about this um, is that, uh, you know, the proper response to something extraordinary like this would have been to say, we have part, we have interests beyond our partisan interests. You know, I think the reason the prime minister and others have have been inclined to de-emphasize this is because they don't want to create the perception that somehow their election win was, uh, was illegitimate or, or whatever. And I, you know, on one hand, one can understand that instinct. On the other hand, we have far more important principles here, which is that we have a collective interest um, in protecting our, the integrity of our elections from foreign actors. And it's extraordinary that this has been circulating in the government sometime since the 2021 election campaign, and we've only learned about it through the journalism of Bob Fife and Stephen Chase and not proactively uh, from the government. Uh, what, what do you think, Rudyard?
0: Well, I mean, I like the way Stuart and you guys put this. It's it's kind of like, a, I, I don't know, it's like a... A Trump-esque maneuver on the part of the government, in that they know that if this comes to light, it could quite unfairly, you know, tarnish uh, their their election win. Um, and let's remember, it's a minority government, so you know, who knows? Uh, was this going to be decisive? Probably not. But nonetheless, it's kind of as if they're they've got their Donald Trump. Um, mask on uh, halloween mask and they're you know thinking like how do we spin this so that you know we don't end up in a kind of russia gate type scenario and then all the chaos and perceived you know legitimacy crisis that kind of comes with that um and if that's the case and that's truly what's kind of motivated again very lawyerly language from the prime minister on this issue over the last number of months uh that is disappointing indeed uh, because you're absolutely right sean you know there are much bigger interests here and those interests have to be cross-party and they have to deal not only with elections canada and election security they have to deal with like penetration of actual parties themselves uh, which are largely black boxes in canada uh, largely unregulated at least in terms of their operations i don't know Stuart. um where do you think this goes from here um you know we are in a minority parliament so you know committees do have more power is there does this get kicked down to the committee level uh does the opposition try to stir up some trouble on this are there more shoes to drop where do you think this goes
1: yeah i would assume there would be some kind of committee action on this and i i think you know the, it, i i was a little um interested in why the conservative appetite for this wasn't as high as i thought it might be um for the last couple of years just in china in general they're willing to criticize um, here and there, but maybe they think it's not a winning issue. And I I was talking to um, conservative candidates in big cities, Vancouver, Toronto. And one thing I did hear is that the party's platform, which was, you know, I would say tough on China. It wasn't over the top or anything. It wasn't anything that was out of the mainstream. Um, some of these candidates were saying that basically killed them with these Chinese populations in the cities. And I, this is kind of the interesting issue here, which is that there are very large Chinese Canadian populations in these cities, sometimes encompassing large parts of ridings, especially in Vancouver. And even without state sponsored interference. um, Once the chatter gets going in this kind of ethnic media or among group chats and things like that, it is really hard to rein that in. And I think the conservatives were having trouble sort of balancing that line with their broader platform, um, which I think was correctly tough on china and then selling that to some of these urban writings so you could make the case that maybe they shouldn't care about these urban writings anyways because they're not going to win them but um it's just an interesting balance that they have to do because it doesn't take china interfering in our election to make this a hard sell
2: um for some of these candidates this is just wild guys like this is a this comes down to fundamental like are we a serious country or not i mean some of the the some of the um insights from this report, you know, evidence of Chinese students being paid um, through the consulate to volunteer full time on election campaigns, schemes whereby campaigns were taking donations from uh, uh, Chinese Canadians, giving them the tax credit, and then paying them back the difference between the original donation and the government refund. You know, the list goes on and on. Um, This ought to be a bloody wake up call. Um, that we need to spend less of our time talking, as Stuart says, about you know misinformation on social media and so on, which oftentimes feels like a bit of a coded language for language for ideas and arguments the government doesn't like, and real misinformation, which involves a geopolitical foe um, trying to orchestrate a particular outcome in the election campaign. That's a wild thing. The according to Chase and, and Fife, China's the outcome that it wanted the most was a liberal minority government um because it would mean that we would spend most of our time fighting amongst ourselves uh in parliament and not uh on uh Chinese, you know, national security, geopolitical and kind of economic considerations or issues. This is a, a, a big deal as far as I'm concerned. And I think the PM needs to be called to the carpet. Like when did he know? What did he know? Why hasn't he brought this to the attention of the Canadian public yet? Let's just
0: leave with some rank speculation on that very point. So why, Stuart? I mean, they knew this was there. Yes, we've talked about the theory possibly of not getting kind of ensnared into some equivalent of Russiagate. Is that really it, though? I mean, it, to me, the, the costs, again, that the cover-up are worse than the crime would just seem obvious. And, you know, the two Michaels are back. Um, why wouldn't this have been an opportunity to try to present a more unified front on China, to try to you know, rally the other parties into some kind of consensus policy. I don't know, there's so many other ways this could go as opposed to this seemingly, again, lawyerly, secretive, um, maybe possibly deceptive narrative that's come out of PMO.
1: Yeah, and I, one thing we know from our own polling at The Hub is that the public is on board if you want to get tough on China. It's not a hard sell. And one thing about the prime minister is that he has kind of maintained this feeling that he has to be very delicate with China. Um, I genuinely don't know where that is coming from. I don't know if it's just his predisposition to that or if there's some sort of larger strategic aim there, but um, they just don't want to go down that road. And I, you can imagine Sean's theory of maybe we bring everyone together this becomes a non-partisan thing where we're all working together. The prime minister looks like a leader there. He looks like he's beyond partisanship and it's probably good for him in a partisan way anyways. So I, I it is a very strange thing. And we always, we've been sort of furrowing our brows about this for two years now, I think. Why does the prime minister continue to have this uh, soft spot here? Um, so I, your guess is as good as mine. I think this is going to really, I can't imagine this goes away. And it's the kind of thing that, when the next election rolls around, it's going to be an extremely salient issue because at that point, we're going to be worried about it again. So um, it'll be great to see. I I just, my sense is that this prime minister is not going to change his disposition on China. I just don't see it going anywhere. And um, that could be a big opening for the conservatives, especially when the election starts.
2: Can I just weigh in quick, guys, on yeah, some yeah. of that? Um, it, it invokes in my mind, the master's dissertation of the Hubs podcast Producer, Amal Atar Guzman, which documented the extent to which foreign policy and geopolitical issues don't tend to loom large in election campaigns. When you combine this story with the point that Stuart has raised about a, a growing public appetite to take a more hawkish line on China, you know, one wonders if Canada's relationship with China and its, its place in the world more broadly um, doesn't become a, a, a kind of more salient political issue. And, and in that vein, um, if Pierre Poly is listening, I think sooner rather than later, guys, he needs to kind of put on the table how he thinks about these types of questions. We've discussed in the past that he came to the conservative leadership, um, both based on his ministerial track record, but also the issues that he emphasized during the leadership as a kind of primarily domestic oriented leader. Um, as these issues loom larger, I think there is an onus on him to paint a bit of a picture. How does he think about the world? Uh, what is got to be Canada's policy vis-a-vis China? What about possible future North American integration, which incidentally is a subject of today's uh, dialogue uh, with uh, with David Frum? I could go on and on, but I, I wonder actually if we might be in a world in which geopolitics, foreign policy may, may be a bigger deal than they've they have been for some time. What do you think, Rudyard?
0: Yeah, well, let me just end with my rank speculation. I mean, you just put this all together, guys. You know, Chinese sanctions against uh, Canadian agriculture, the, the horrible kind of abuse and hostage-taking of the two Michaels, and now direct, concerted criminal interference in our elections. You, you have to just come to a point where you say, this is an enemy, it is an opponent, There is not the basis for a, you know, a cooperative relationship for the, you know, the chimera of triangulation where Canada somehow breaks out of it in orbit of over-reliance on the United States to triangulate, you know, its diplomatic and economic and other, you know, futures and power to Asia vis-a-vis China. I think that door is closed for the foreseeable future, uh, based on the record of China's behavior towards Canada and, you know, any sensible analysis of the current, you know, geopolitical moment and increasing competition between China and the United States. So the die is cast. And again, I just I don't get the straddling of this government. I I worry about, you know, I, I, I just I go to bad places, you know, an over preponderance of the influence of certain elements of the business community. Who are very pro Beijing because they have business interests in China right now uh, that they're relying on. Um, you know, I go to a prime minister that's maybe thinking about his career after politics, and whether that's you know in the UN or some international body, whether that's in business. Um, you know, some friendliness, some acceptance on the part of the Chinese is pretty important these days uh, to have an international career, either in finance or diplomacy um that's a shitty motive to ascribe to somebody but what what else explains it what it's it's just dumbfounding to me this kid glove approach in the face of offense after offense transgression after transgression you know why guys why are we why are we accepting this it's not worthy of the country it's not worthy of uh yeah of how we should be conducting statecraft um, here, here. um that's my rant. I got Reggie's ranted. I'm back guys. <laughs>
2: well, you had you had to come up with one because we've been getting <laughs> email comments from people that they they missed one last week. You know, Stuart and I did our best, but we couldn't we couldn't replicate it. Uh yeah, yeah, so we're we're sure glad to have you back this week.
1: Can I just say, guys? I previously mentioned reporting by CTV. I meant reporting by Sam Cooper at Global. So sorry to Sam. That, it was he did some great stuff. So I don't want to make sure I didn't get that, that wrong.
0: Yeah, ditto. I think I mentioned CTV too because I think wasn't there some of the original reporting done by CTV. Anyway, it's 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 a team effort, and it, Sean is right. Kudos to elements of the Ottawa Press Bureau um, that do that do hold government to account. That do show you know this critical role that journalism plays, holding you know truth truth to power. Um, kudos to them well done guys Okay, we'll do this all again next Friday in the meantime enjoy your weekend thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable edition of the Hub Dialogues I'm Roger Griffiths executive director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's editor-in-chief. This program is produced and edited by Amal Otter Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to the Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's the Hub Dialogues and it's waiting for you right now on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Lukin and Maxime Granovsky Luskin, Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.